The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Welcome to the Urantia Radio Podcast. My guest is Joel Garvin. He's been on the program a couple of times, and I always enjoy having him. Long-time Urantia book reader. His background is in science and, and technology, and uh, it's good to have him on. And I thought, if you recall in our earlier podcast, the first time we met Joel, uh, he had recently presented a Urantia uh, presentation which is on our website, by the way. I still have it up for those who want to check it out. It's a PowerPoint that was introduced to a group at a ufology conference. And I remember, Joel, that you had remarked about how enthusiastic people in the world of ufology are or were receptive to your presentation at that conference. And it was, I think, back in 2018 or something. Anyway, uh, and I thought, well, you know, maybe that's an avenue of commonality because the Urantia book seems to address a lot of the ancient alien mysteries and all the mysteries of prehistoric man. And I've come to recognize that almost every mysterious thing that has made it in those books, you know, the chariot, the chariots of the gods and uh, the fingerprint of the gods, you know, all those books and the television shows about ancient aliens. I think they're all sort of addressed in the Urantia book, and I thought, well, how interesting would that be if we did a podcast on those mysteries and explain to people what the Urantia book has to say about them? And that's why I thought of you, Joel. How are you? You're oh, welcome. I'm doing great, Jim, and I love this topic. I think it's really on point for addressing a lot of the interest today that there is in the topic of ancient aliens, UFOs, and all of that. And the Urantia book does provide this amazing backdrop for how to view these things that actually were historical, but that there's explanations that go beyond what are uh, postulated in shows like the Ancient Aliens uh, series that's been on the History Channel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because it seems to me that we all grew up in the period of. Star Trek and uh, Outer Limits. So in a way, we were kind of groomed. I hate to use the word because it's got such a negative connotation these days. But we were sort of groomed from an early age. And I think what happened, it, it sort of planted this seed, this idea that the universe was filled with living beings. And that we're just separated by space and that these beings could be intelligent and some of them nefarious and some of them not so nefarious. And I think this really fueled the interest, the general interest in ufology. And then from there, the interest in all of these ancient clues back in the day, like, you know, what about the Nazca lines or what about Gebleki Tepe and the pyramids and the gardens of Babylon and all these other mysterious things that were created by supposedly intelligent people. When at that time there were no intelligent people, according to archeology, span they, they insist that we were pretty much stone age up until about 2000 BC. Uh, 
But how could that be? Because it's not consistent, right? Right. So, so, well, I think a, a good way to look at this, and you actually used the phrase planting a seed, I think that that might be the appropriate place for us to start in our discussion, because what always is of interest in the whole UFO ET story is how did humanity come to be on yeah. this planet? How did life itself come to be on this planet? And the Arantian book has a lot to say about that. I think first we ought to recognize that the book speaks about us living in a highly inhabited universe. In, even in our local system of, of planets and stars, they say that there's over 600 inhabited planets. When we stretch that out to what they call the local universe, there's approximately 4 million inhabited planets. Stretch that out even further to what they say comprises a super universe and now we're talking nearly one trillion inhabited planets and so many of these are billions of years older than our own planet so given that it says that they are inhabited and that so many of them are much older whether they're whether they're just decades older or billions of years older that implies that they are much more advanced than earth humanity in in regards to technology a cultural achievement uh, perhaps spiritual awareness and really recognition of universal truth so it's highly likely that there are many many civilizations out there that are spacefaring that also have a much greater grasp of what is true on a universal level. And certainly the Urantia book, through its revelation, just trying to help Earth humanity understand this broader picture. So, you know, one of the things that I think would be helpful for us is to go through, in our discussion here today, what are the various beings that the Urantia book says are visible to Earth humanity, and and let them talk about those beings uh, going back to the very early days. Uh, that pretty much covers that timeline of the whole uh, ancient alien examination. Uh, the, the first of these would be these beings that they call the life carriers, and you use the term, Jim, uh, planting a seed. Well, the life carriers basically had the responsibility to implant life on inhabited planets. Well, hold and on so here, Joe, it, because there is one element that I think we have to use. We need to put a primer in here. And that primer that I think bridges the Arantia book narrative, its explanation of the living universe, and what, what connects it to the UFOologist, the person who believes in the idea or the notion that a superior civilization came here and and was here and the difference the primer is the marancha world that's what i want to also introduce into this conversation because the advanced civilization that joel and i are talking about is not necessarily a civilization from another world this is a civilization that is governed by a spiritual hierarchy this is where they come from these are not extraterrestrial beings that come from the planet kryptonite two years two light years away and they came here ten thousand years ago and planted their seed we're not talking about that kind of 
ancient alien. What we're talking about is an intelligent economy of living intelligent beings who are in charge of the universe, who who manage, who administer to, who create new universes. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about and you know green men from Mars. I'm talking about super spiritual Moranchian, you know, like Adam and Eve, which we'll get to. They weren't from another they were from another planet. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the primer that we need to introduce <laughs> is that these aren't just aliens from another world randomly. This is a hierarchy, you know, the expression the most highs rule in the kingdoms of men is a great example of this. There is a hierarchy of beings who lovingly administer to us and Michael who is Christ is in charge of this operation. And then I just wanted to inject that point into this discussion. Yeah, that's a that's a great qualifier there, Jim, because uh, most of what you know the book speaks of as far as these other orders of being that have been visible to Earth humanity are indeed from these higher spheres that aren't just physical the way we speak of, but they're actually part of the spiritual economy and administration of a far-flung universe. Now, that's that's not uh, uh, that's not true in all cases, though, because there are references to beings that may be from from uh, material planets like our own that have had their life evolve over time. And we'll make reference to those a little bit later. But uh, generally, what you have said here definitely is the case. Well, so even were, these life carrier yes. beings that I spoke of. Right. But we, uh, would, they, we wouldn't they, see them. I mean, the, a life carrier son is part of that group of sons uh, that they have a specific duty. I mean, they're, are they self-governing? I'm not sure, but their job is basically to carry life, like you were saying. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the life carriers are described as uh, having uh, three different phases of life uh, or frequency, I guess is a term I would use. They can exist in three different frequencies, uh, that are one, the highest would be pretty much a semi-spiritual phase. The second would be would, would be considered this intermediate morontial phase of life. But the third is actually a physical form of life because that's absolutely necessary for them to actually be able to operate with electrochemical physical systems, which of course comprises biology. So it's, it's actual, I mean, we are, we have these bodies that are electrochemical organisms that are indeed physical. And in order to be able to manipulate the chemistry itself, just like a chemist in any laboratory, you have to have a physical uh, organism to be able to do those experiments. Because we're not just talking thought experiments here, right. which could occur at a mirage level. We're talking about actually, you know, mixing up. Uh, chemicals and, and doing DNA and, experiments yeah, exactly. and all this kind of thing. So, yeah. so when when the life carriers came to this planet, which they say happened about 600 million years ago, a long time ago, uh, they came and they implanted um, genetic material uh, in the shallow, salty seas of the planet in several different locations. 
And then they have the responsibility to nurture that life as it develops from the very primordial bacteria and other early vegetative forms all the way up through through the early animals and the higher animals and eventually to where human beings arrive out of that long evolutionary struggle. And by the way, and let course, me also interject yeah. that that only happens because of all the organizational uh, what we call prep work there if you want to get a good glimpse of, of this is, is like three people three guys didn't just show up and start dropping protozoa in the oceans there was a whole litany of of force organizers uh and it had to be approved by the ancients of days and all of these other governing bodies a permit had to be filed <laughs> which is you know right. a permit there had to be an exploratory group that went out and this is stuff that happened hundreds of millions of years ago and it's it's fascinating to hear you talking about it but so these these three life carrier sons show up and they introduce uh, a genetic compound and uh, in fact not long ago i was uh, i think i mentioned this i had one of my wisdom teeth removed and i thought about the life carriers and what went into the design of my teeth <laughs> i thought boy they did a really good job because this guy's working it he can't get my tooth out very easily so anyway but anyway. <laughs> so so we have the life carriers here a long time ago and and they say there were about 14 of them involved um and that that's uh, actually uh, actually, there may have been many more involved, but they worked with a, a whole retinue of other types of beings who were part of, of what's necessary in order to to develop and establish life and to nurture that life along. But apparently, 14 of these life carriers that they describe as two senior life carriers and two and 12 custodians, total 14, that they've remained on our planet for the past 500,000 years and are still here, although not in a, a form in which we could see them. They yeah. would be in this mid-phase, this morontial phase, so we would not see them directly. But what's, what is really interesting here is that for every 10th inhabited planet that has life implantation, every 10th planet has the uh, permission to have a new type of life implanted on it that's never existed before and it says that indeed our planet urantia is one of these what they call life modification spheres uh, that has new forms of life that aren't found anywhere else in the whole universe so that's one of the things that makes our planet of intense interest to beings on other planets uh, including those who may be out simply exploring and learning We'll talk about that that group who who go and explore and learn. They're they're called uh, student visitors, um, and basically they are out trying to learn as much as they can, uh, you know, on different planets. Uh, but again, and this sometimes group is they're referred not seen. to as as star students, right? Which is a a uh, an interesting term because the term student, of course, means that they're seeking knowledge. They're they're out there to learn. So it definitely paints this picture that there are some very advanced civilizations of evolved humans from more advanced planets that likely are older than ours who are spacefaring and have the technology to 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 transfer uh, you know traverse interstellar space, and some of those have been in our neighborhood. 
here, uh, meaning the neighborhood of our planet. And, and one of the things that attracts them here is the fact that this is a life modification sphere with forms of life that don't exist anywhere else. Another thing that attracts them is that this planet is the bestowal planet of Christ Michael. And only one out of, out of you know, 10 million planets gets to be that chosen planet. So that makes this one a very unique planet. And the third thing is that uh, it, the book says that we have a headquarters of the archangels located on Urantia, which is also very unusual. So those three things, this being a life modification sphere, this being the bestowal world of our local universe creator sun, and this being a planet with an archangel's headquarters, creates intense interest for those who are seeking knowledge and and understanding uh, who may be traveling uh, throughout the universe and through our own solar system, these star students or student visitors. So again, you're portraying uh, what is... uh you know, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, you know, when you start to look at the universe as a living organism where there are thriving intelligent societies, uh, you know, in a normal situation had certain things not occurred, uh, you know, 200,000 years ago, we would be more privy and this information wouldn't be as so shocking to us if you're listening to this podcast and you've not been familiar with the Urantia book, uh, you know, and again, we're trying to address that real issue because there are, you know, we're fat, we're naturally fascinated by this idea of interstellar beings and, and galactic traveling. And I mean, this, why do why do we think Star Wars is so damn popular? I mean, we, <laughs> exactly. right. And there's, there are a lot of uh, parallels to those kinds of presentations uh for example the student Mm -hmm. visitors you know think of it this way when you and i are no longer here and we're no longer in this vehicle that we call our bodies and we're on to the heaven or uh, the resurrection phase our next life we too will be allowed to travel and traverse and go and visit other worlds now they won't see us and we won't have any involvement in their life but we will be able to observe them as they are because we're close and kin we're not too far above the material phase i guess you could say of life so kind of have to look at it you know what we're basically saying is that there all of those things that we think are true are true because there is life out there there is life everywhere that's one of i think the most attractive features of the urantia book but um but talk about again some of the earlier these ancient aliens of earlier days and who they were the nodites for example let's talk about them for a little bit yeah, look, I, I, I want to do that in a second. I would like to make a connection, though, between uh, what I just spoke of on the life carriers and what is of, of great interest to people who study modern ufology. Okay. I mean, most everyone knows, uh, in, in popular culture at least, that there's a, a group of, of extraterrestrial beings that have been uh, referred to as the greys. And so whenever you see the classic uh, E.T. image of the kind of big black bug-eyed, you know, large head, small body being, uh, whether it's it's gray in color, green or whatever, but that's basically uh, considered a depiction of these grays. And it's the lore around those beings 
has a lot to do with uh, what is considered to be an abduction phenomenon where humans are abducted and they have uh, genetic uh, experiments, other medical experiments done on them. And there's many reports of hybridization programs that are being performed by that particular group of entities called the Greys. Also, there are stories of cattle mutilations where on ranches, these, these cattle will be found in, in a field and they will have very precise, almost with laser-like precision, removal of various organs uh, just out in the middle of a field with no tracks coming to the animal. It's, it's as if it had been removed from the field from up above and then had the, these surgical procedures performed on it, and then it's just put back down on the ground. Yeah. And it's very interesting. It's something I've studied for, for decades uh, to try to understand this unusual phenomenon. And there's been books written about it and all this kind of thing. So a question that comes up in my mind, you know, given that, that if these gray uh, entities are, are indeed factual and real, and they have such an intense interest in uh, the human biology, our reproductive systems, uh, our genetic material, as well as that of other animals such as cattle. Is it possible that they are working in some type of concert with the life carriers? Uh, because it, it would make sense that the life carriers, after implanting life, watch it evolve over millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, and now we're at the stage of having uh, evolved humans here. And given the amount of pollution that we have on our planet right now, because you know we have all the chemical technology and, and all, all these ways that, that through our industrial society, we have compromised our food system and basically the environment of the whole planet. It would make sense that life carriers would be interested to know, hey, are all these chemicals that have been introduced in, into the environment and the food, how are they impacting human beings? How are they impacting other animals? How are they impacting you know, the aquatic and marine ecosystems? So it would make sense that they would have some type of monitoring of those potentially damaging effects because many of those effects are genetic in nature and can actually change chromosomes. Like we, we see the uh, all of the uh, a lot of the pesticides, especially uh, you know pesticides, uh, the the you know popular uh, herbicides uh, that have been around for a long time, have had very damaging effects on uh, amphibians like frogs. So now there's there not only has there been a massive frog extinction on the planet, but there also has been endocrine disruption of of those uh, amphibious creatures so that now a lot of times uh, they can't reproduce or what was male now is female. Uh, and they and some of them are hermaphroditic, meaning they are both male and female. A lot of very concerning uh, damage being done by chemicals that have been introduced to the environment. So when I think about the, the potential tie-in between life carriers and these gray aliens, you know, might they actually be uh, purposefully working to collect information to see what indeed is happening in real time with the pollution of our environment? Mm. 
So it's just a question that I that I you know kind of put out there. Well, I, I think, think I'd be about. inclined to see that that's a kind of a logic logical deduction. Uh, where I where I have a uh, skepticism is it that that the Arantia book doesn't make any kind of reference to this kind of thing occurring where they utilize the otherworldliness aliens to perform something on our world, you know? I mean, I, I don't know if there's not a reference made to that kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, now the greys, would they be like an advanced uh, group of people from another nearby world or would they be, uh, you know, would they be from, say, Adentia or Jerusalem? Where do you think they would be originating well, from? Well, many, many who have studied this uh, for a long time, and I've met some of the leading researchers uh, in the whole UFO community, uh, many of them think that the, the gray aliens aren't actually uh, fully physical beings. Many of them think that these are type of robotic beings. Ah, uh, where, where they go. Where they, they might be part... Uh, kind of think of like little uh, androids. Yeah, you know they might have. Uh, think think about data. Non-emotional, non-personality types. Yes, and that's also another feature that they're always described as is having no emotion. Yeah, they're very dispassionate. They just feel very businesslike about their business and doing these medical examinations and the genetic. Uh, manipulation and all of this it, yeah. it's like they've been programmed to do this task uh and they are very high functioning I, I, uh, so I they appear to be very road. intelligent yeah. much like data from star trek but remember data he has a a a physical like if you were to, to cut him he might bleed but if you dig in it deeper, you're going to find a mechanical mechanism in yeah. there somewhere well it, you but know? you make a good point and i'll draw to it is that Nothing on this planet happens without somebody giving approval. I mean, because of the fact that we are, like you mentioned, the Archangel's headquarters, you know, we're an experimental world. Uh, we have a lot of, we're known as the world of the cross. I mean, we're we're definitely a place that has got a lot of tension, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from another other advanced. So on that, and I think within the ufology community, I've heard this discussed where there are groups of like the reptilians, then there are the greys, and then there's another group that, that, and that there are nefarious groups that are seeking to take over. That I don't, I, I can't go down that rabbit hole because, again, I, I believe that the universe is managed intelligently and that our planet is pretty special and that that kind of activity seems more along the nature of brutal worlds that might be depicted in science fiction movies, you know, like Star Wars, where you have, uh, you know, you got Darth Vader, and uh, you know what you know what I'm saying. In other words, I don't think that the, mm-hmm. it's not intelligent enough for me. I don't think that the universe would be that haphazard, where you'd have alien forces trying to dominate different worlds. But you know, I could be wrong. My point is well, that it, it, you yeah. know that I like what you're saying is that it could be that, that there's a functional process going on because of the conditions on our Earth right now. And we know right. from the writings of the Urantia book that genetics is very important to, uh, you know, to the life carriers and, and to the, you know, people who care about our or the personalities that care about our existence. They talk Absolutely. often about the importance yeah. for us to, you know, what do they say? Uh, you know, you don't get any more. There aren't going to be any more evolutions of humans. You're it. So you need to 
you know, pay close attention. And what, what's that, you know, the good qualities of, of intelligence and genetics need to be uh, carefully handled. Don't throw them away, right. you know. So anyway. Right. Uh, but okay, what else? Anything yeah, you want to cover so before let's, we? Let's, yeah, so let's let's progress forward from there. So, uh, so the life carriers, you know, they they were on the scene 600 million years ago, and they continue, you know, to this day to be present. Uh, the next group that shows up are come a half a million years ago, 500,000 years ago to the planet, and they are part of the uh, the staff that arrives with the planetary prince and that planetary prince is the planetary administrator. He's given the name Talagastia in the Urantia book, and he has a Lieutenant named Dalagastia. Uh, they were both of those two were invisible to humans uh, because they are, they are much higher, higher beings than earth humanity. Uh, however, along with this, uh, this planetary prince and and his number two, there were 100 corporeal beings. They're referred to as the corporeal staff of 100. So there were 50 male, 50 female. These were uh, other humans, each of whom had lived their original native life on other planets besides Urantia. So so these 100 beings, you know, half men, half women, were from 100 different planets. And after they had left their respective planets as part of their continuing life journey after their uh, natural death, and they, they went to the system headquarters world of, of uh, the capital of our local system is, is called Jerusalem. Uh, they were recruited from a large number of volunteers to come back to our planet, which was in a very, very early stage of its human evolution. Uh, and at the, at the time, a half million years ago, where the prince and the staff of 100 corporeal beings arrived, human, Earth humanity was about half a million years old, but still in a very primitive stage. All right, so they so they arrive on the planet, and it it gives a lot of interesting details about this corporeal staff of one hundred. Uh, they they apparently were very tall in stature. It, it suggests they were maybe maybe eight feet tall. Uh, they would have had uh, absolutely perfect physiques. They would have been uh, you know very attractive beings, incredibly intelligent. Uh, not just because of the endowments that they had physically and and from the mind standpoint, but also because of their experience. Because remember, these are coming from other planets, 100 different planets, and these are likely the best and brightest that were available from that pool of volunteers. These people would, would have been highly familiar with all the technology, technological development uh, developments and cultural developments that had transpired on their own native worlds. So now you have 100 of these beings here on Earth with an incredible amount of cosmic knowledge regarding not just not just uh, their own local histories on those 100 planets, but technological knowledge. And so this is going to come a, a, a big part to play 
in all of these uh, uh, these inquiries about how did we have these megalithic structures come about all over our planet? And how does it seem that these ancient peoples had amazing technology? Well, this is what, what I'm speaking of right now with the corporeal staff. This is where the answer lies here. And also so, we should mention, now you're opening the door, uh, Joel, to the past that we have a glimpse of in our old writings. For example, take the quote from Genesis, there were giants in those days, uh, or sons of the uh, sons of God who came down and took the daughters of men uh, as wives. Now, and remembering that at this particular time when this group of 100 show up, we're right at the very, very beginning of almost pre-modern human, probably homo sapien at that point. And, right. uh, and these, this group, along with Calagastia and Dalagastia, they've chose the, an area which we now refer to as the Persian Gulf to set up this first civilization where they would recruit the brighter uh, minds of the local tribes, bring them in, and basically teach them the rudiments of civilization. And so they're right. strong, all of these legends of these gods, and that's directly linked to what Joel just described. Yes, so that very first city on our planet, located, as Jim said, in the Persian Gulf region, it was given the name Dalamatia, and it was established 500,000 years ago. And this was the world capital of of. Of wisdom it wasn't and very teaching. big, by the way. I, I don't think there were more than a few hundred people. But this is <laughs> these are the humble beginnings. <laughs> yeah, those were the humble beginnings. But eventually, it says you know it came to have uh, some tens of thousands of inhabitants there. Yeah. Now these, the, I want to go back to this the staff of one hundred uh, corporeal beings because there's some interesting things the book has to say about how their bodies were prepared. Uh, to be inhabited by the souls of these volunteers. And what it says is that the, uh, the bodies were specially prepared for this group of 100. And in order to, to help make them, uh, uh, to help give them the ability to reproduce with earth, humanity, which was part of the eventual plan, but not part of the early plan, uh, what happened was there was the extraction of some cells from a group of, of volunteers from the, the first human race called the Andonite race. So there were a hundred volunteers. I think are, do you think, Joel, uh, that, uh, there, let me interrupt there you. 50, do you Hold on, uh, for time reference, because I know it'll mean something. Do you think the Denosovans are the Andonites? The Nephilim? The, no, the, Deno the Denisovans, these are the early Asian, early man, what they call the De Denisovans, that uh, stretch back uh, to the earliest, these are among the earliest humans. I guess you're not familiar with that term. But yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah. not familiar with that term. All right. Well, continue on then. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. Okay. So, so in order for this staff of 100 to be given the ability to eventually uh, reproduce with human beings, there was a group of volunteers taken from you know 50 male, 50 
female volunteers from the the original human race called the Andonites. And so it, it describes that quote-unquote life plasm was extracted from those humans. And I, I think what they're likely talking about is stem cells, that stem cells were extracted and then they were implanted into the bodies that had been specially prepared for the Caligastia 100. And uh, it says that there were actual surgeons who would come from another local universe and they give the name of that universe as Avalon and it says that those Avalon surgeons were the ones who extracted uh, this life plasma and then transplanted it into the bodies of the Caligastia 100. Well now surgeons as we know surgeons are they're physical. If you're going to be you know taking something out of a body and putting it into another body that requires actual physical, uh, you know, uh, digits, hands, you know, bodies, eyes, uh, instruments, things like that. So this is another reference to, to this was, uh, those would have been another uh, order of high beings uh, who, who would have been visible to humans, these Avalon surgeons. And how did they get here? They likely got here, uh, you know, with some type of advanced, technology, you know, a spacecraft or something like that, where they actually could have a laboratory or think of it like a, a at least medical examination rooms or something for them to do these surgical procedures. That would not have been done uh, just with simple, uh, a simple seraphic transport, which is what's described several times in the Arantia book as, as how a a seraphim angel uh, might have the capacity to envelop the soul of a human being who has who has died and is now departing from this planet and on its journey to to the headquarters world of our local system. Well, that's a that's a that that that's a energetic and moronical transaction and transportation. But when you have a surgeon coming from a local universe with instruments and laboratory and all that. Undoubtedly, they came here on some type of craft. Okay, so so that's that's an interesting thing to to take and, into and, account. And, and could that have given legend to or given co- uh, origin of legends? You know, I know that the Arantia book says that the the taking of Adam's rib and creating Eve stems from this legend of the surgeries that you refer to now. Yes, yes, Jim. I think that's exactly the case. You know, that would have been such an amazing event uh, in early human history. It would have People been profound. would have remembered that. Yeah, that and would have been we, passed what, on. Yeah. What we find out here is that, uh, you know, those those Caligastia 100, you know, not only were they, they tall and brilliant, uh, wise, uh, incredible physical specimens, and they were the primary teachers of all of the early humans who were brought to that that capital city of Dalmatia, and they would have been in the minds of those primitive humans. These would have been gods and goddesses, and so many of the legends that came from, you know, the the legend of the the sons of God coming down. Ra. In fact, there's a there's yeah. a there's a passage in uh, actually a, a couple of passages in the Urantia book that speaks to what those uh, Genesis 
verses uh, really meant, and that you know when it says you know the the sons of God uh, came into meaning made it with the daughters of men, and then they gave birth to the the mighty men of old. Uh, that that that's a reference to the the early uh, the early progeny of the these Caligastria 100 who actually had gone into rebellion and well now and, we're getting way had, too ahead of everybody so let's slow down a little bit yeah. because you know this is a timeline that stretches and and I want to stay focused a little bit on on again you know w- w- the, the essence of this is to introduce to people the answers to a lot of these mysterious yeah. questions and so you now we're into that phase and uh, the the this group that you're talking about, Joel, came down to us, and are now referred to in the Bible as the Nodites, the land yes, of Nod, these, east yeah, of the land yeah, of Nod. These, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those Nodites, those Nodites were, uh, they were from a uh, of the original 100 staff. Sixty of them are described as having joined into the rebellion that uh, was not just the Lucifer Rebellion that affected our whole local system, but the Caligastia portion, uh, basically the planetary prince of our planet, his part in the rebellion. So it's more specific to our planet. And at 60 of his staff joined him as a rebel. And that immediately... Uh, he ordered them to start reproducing with each other. So there's, you know, there's 30 males, 30 females of this, of this group of the these uh, essentially super mortals, and they start reproducing. And their progeny uh, basically came to be known as the Nodites, because, uh, named after pretty much the leader, one of the leaders of that rebel group. And, uh, you know, and that Nodite group had a lot to do with the subsequent accounts uh, that are in ancient texts, including in the Genesis account in the Bible. And it, it says that these Nodites were indeed the Nephilim that are referred to in the biblical Genesis account. And uh, the Nodites represented the eighth race on Urantia. So the original race would have been the Andonites. Then you had the six different colored races that came along a half million years after the Andonites. So now we've got a total of seven purely human evolutionary races. And now we've got the Nodites, who were these super mortals who had come from these other planets. And, and, and their progeny are called you know, the, the Nodite, you know, ape, ape race. And so we're now talking 200,000 years ago when the Nodites started. And these, these people, not only were they superior in virtually every way to the evolutionary humans by virtue of their physicality, their intelligence, their spiritual insight, they also lived much, much longer. So that would have been another one of these attributes that would have, have portrayed them as godlike to the early humans. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting to, to think about when you look at the, 
the accounts of Sumerian kings and how long they supposedly reigned. And the further they go back in antiquity, the longer their reign, which implies that, hey, you know, these guys were living hundreds of years as, as you go further back, uh, but the lives keep getting shorter as you come forward, which also is very similar to the Genesis account uh, when they, they're talking about, you know, uh, they're tracing the lineage from Adam and Eve and forward. You know, Adam supposedly in the Bible, you know, lived, uh, lived what I think, 800 years or something like that. And then you have Methuselah, a thousand years and all these others. But basically they're kind of, uh, those are reflective of the fact that these, uh, you know, these Nodites, uh, you know, lived very long, longer than the average human. Uh, and, and then and when we talked about the, the Adam and Eve part of this story, they also had lived, lived very long as well. Um, anyway, it's, it, it says that these Nodites established four different centers of civilization. There were some that were, uh, they called the Western Nodites, who were based primarily around Syria. And they became, they basically were the ancestors of the later Assyrians. There were the eastern Nodites who lived kind of east of the, the Euphrates River in, in uh, the land that was later considered to be Elam, uh, and these were the forerunners of the Elamites. Then there was the central Nodites who occupied the kind of classic Mesopotamian valley between the Tigris and Euphrates, and they, they, became the, they were the ancestors of the Sumerians who came back, who came along much later. And then you had the northern Nodites uh, who lived up around uh, eastern Turkey and what's present-day Armenia. And uh, that would have been the civilization uh, whose descendants would have been the ones who established this incredible archaeological find at Gobekli Tepe. And, and Gobekli Tepe is, is in between the region of Syria and uh, Armenia. And Gobekli Tepe goes back, they're, they're dating it now, uh, about about 12,000 years. Now, do you think that uh, would have been in the area of Lake Van, which is, well, Van actually, is named after it's, one it's of act, the hundred? Yeah, it's actually, Gobekli Tepe is southwest of Lake Van. It's, it's kind of midway in between Syria, the northern border of Syria, and Lake Van. Mm. So it could have been, uh, you know, these, these could have been descendants of the, uh, the northern Nodites who were, uh, that, that settlement had been established by one of the loyal staff members named Van, yeah. after whom Lake Van was named. Uh, and then he also had a human uh, a, a co-worker named Amadon uh, who also, you know, did great things. He, he's described in your answer book as, as one of the most heroic of, of the early humans to ever live. Uh, and what, what's interesting is that uh, those two beings, you had Van, who was essentially a super mortal, and then you had Amadon, who was an, an evolutionary human. He's one of those uh, Andonites had, that, uh, that volunteered to go under surgery. Uh, if I'm exactly. yeah, right, so he's one of those yeah. that got to meet the surgeons from Avalon and do a little yeah. stem cell 
cross uh, transference or whatever yeah. they did. <laughs> but go on. And both yeah. of them, both of them, both Van and Amadon, had in their custody this special tree or shrub which had been transplanted to the earth from the the local system headquarters world and because they in their their super mortal uh constitution of their their bodies they had special uh kind of you might think of it like they had a special circulatory system in their bodies that that could assimilate some energies that are constantly being streamed to our planet from space uh, and in order to maintain that that energy circulatory system that sustained them physically uh, for a long time they had to partake of of some part of this special shrub or tree they called it the tree of life we don't know really what it looked like i mean was it a big tree was it a shrub was it a bush whatever, but they had to partake perhaps of maybe berries or some leaves or who knows what, but they had to have some of that occasionally to, to maintain this, uh, this energy circulatory system that they had that could assimilate these energy frequencies that are, that are bombarding the planet from space. And that essentially gave them immortality status for as long as they had access to this tree of life, and the maintenance of this this circulatory system of energy, they would essentially uh, uh, be immortal. And so it describes Van and Amadon as uh, remaining on this planet for approximately 465,000 years. That's a long time to collect Social Security. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would bankrupt it right there. Just these two. So you think about that. So, so you know, Van would have been one of those original staff of 100 who came here half a million years ago. Yeah. And then the, the, uh, the planetary rebellion happened 300,000 years later. And it wasn't until the arrival of Adam and Eve just 37,000 years ago that Van and Amadon took their leave from the planet. So so they lived here a total of 465,000 years. So just think of the legends that that would have created among the primitive human people. You have the, these two who are doing amazing things, and actually they were the primary architects of the Garden of Eden and recruited all the volunteers yeah. to, to prepare the garden True. for the, the eventual arrival of Adam and Eve. I mean, these two would have been absolutely legendary. Yeah, and and even, even the name Lake Van itself, no one knows, except those who apparently have read the Urantia book, no one knows where Lake Van got its name. It's apparently been called Van, for so long, no one knows where it came from. And so I found that a, a very interesting piece of trivia when I started to research Lake Van. It's um, also interesting but, that the, uh, there are kingdoms, yeah. various kingdoms that have existed in the recent past, and one of them happens to be Urartians, which I find strikingly similar to the, the name Urantia. 
So. Oh, good. Yeah, very good point. Not that uh, that, point. but they're so recent in time. But it's such a fascinating story, and I hope that people who, uh, especially if you're new to the, some of the concepts, that the the pictures, the the pieces of the puzzle seem to fall more aligned when you have this sort of new perspective that we're talking about here where things are intelligently guided and it's not haphazard yeah. and it's not just uh, all these other things but there's a solidification of of these things you're you're tying all these loose ends together by by yeah. painting this timeline by timing it out for us as they say so now we're in the pre-dawn era of man and yeah. adam and eve show up as you mentioned so now adam Yes, so Adam and Eve show up. Now, they are called the Violet Race, uh, and they are the, the ninth race to appear on Urantia. And like the Nodites before them, who were not native to this planet, neither were the Violet Race. So Adam and Eve were these—they uh, uh, were a male and a female from a— uh, a group of being that are referred to as the material sons and daughters. And they, by and the way, work they, for the same group hailed, that sponsors they hailed the life the local sons. Headquarters. Mm -hmm. And their role in the universal scheme of progression is they are called the biological upsteppers. And what their role is to do is they come to an inhabited planet that has had evolutionary humans on it for some number of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years, doing a slow evolutionary progression. And then at a certain point in that, that human progression, there issues forth the, the, uh, the announcement at the, uh, at the system headquarters that that planet now is going to receive a material son and daughter who are the Adam and Eve for that planet. On our planet, that happened 37,000 years ago. And, and what the role of a material son and daughter is, is to first, uh, you know, on their arrival, kind of establish themselves as the, uh, kind of like a king and a queen, if you will. It's, it's, you know, although they they don't like to receive that type of honor, but basically they become the uh, the heads of the cultural administration of the planet, and they are normally working uh, in the uh, kind of along with the planetary prince who came you know much earlier. In our case, uh, that wasn't uh, available because of the rebellion of of Caligastia and his staff. So Adam and Eve are here pretty much all alone trying to rehabilitate a, a backward and confused humanity. But their charge was to uh, just uh, produce between them uh, many generations of pure line descendants. So their own sons and daughters of the, of the violet race. So pure violet blood descendants and that they were they were to continue to just procreate between them and their sons and daughters and their grandchildren your grandsons granddaughters and so on to procreate among themselves until they had established a pure bloodline pool 
of approximately 500,000 violet rays. And at that point, then, they were to intermarry and interbreed with the highest of each of the evolutionary human races, of which there were seven. There were the Andenites, and then there was the, you know, uh, red, green, black, yellow, uh, uh, blue, and indigo races. So uh, that's the way the plan was supposed to go. But it did not go that way. Uh, because uh, it, th this was such a lonely place for Adam and Eve uh, and and for their their children, uh, because we were so backward um, that they basically decided to uh, to take a shortcut. And the that that shortcut is uh, not quite as it's described in the Genesis account where, you know, where uh, a, a serpent tempted Eve with an apple. She ate the apple from this tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they gave it to Adam, and they were booted out of the garden and all that. wasn't quite like that. was had nothing to do with, with eating a forbidden fruit. It had to do with, with, uh, with taking a shortcut from a reproductive standpoint in that Eve consented to have uh, sexual relations with one of the Nodites. And that put both, uh, both Adam and Eve in a state of default of their commission. And it was a very serious offense. It's one they had been warned about repeatedly. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, uh, Eve succumbed to that. And then Adam immediately, uh, basically, he started to to sexually reproduce with with other uh, Earth uh, uh, evolutionary human women as well to essentially share the fate of Eve. Uh, he thought that it was likely that Eve might actually be removed from the planet because of her decision to uh, to mate with a a nodite. Uh, and so he immediately made it with some of the evolutionary human women uh, so that he would share the same fate as his mate. Now, what ended up happening is, is they, were, uh, they lost their immortality status uh, because the, the, uh, the tree of life was denied them. So they no longer had access to, to its, uh, its leaves and berries or fruit or whatever it was. And also their their dual circulatory system uh, was now compromised as well. So they no longer were going to be uh, have immortality status. They now were going to have a slow deterioration of their physical organism, uh, just like every other normal human being, and they would eventually die a physical death. Now, in their cases, it still was much, much longer. Uh, somewhere closer to 400 years. Uh, so a lot of legends would have arisen around, you know, how long Adam and Eve lived. And that, that of course, is reflected in the Genesis account. Some, some interesting physical features uh, of Adam and Eve, they were described as, as about eight feet tall. Uh, they were, you know, very attractive. Their, their bodies glowed with this soft, violet hue 
They would have been very beautiful to look at, very attractive. The violet race they were described as being the first blonde and red-haired race on the planet. And they were blue-eyed. So they would have been the first ones to have blue eyes as well. Uh, they had larger brains as well. Um, so, you know, the... Uh, uh, this is really interesting from the standpoint of the ancient aliens and even the modern UFO uh, and ET lore, because uh, one of the the races, the ET races, like we talked about the greys earlier, yeah. but another race that's frequently described is what are called the Nordics. And the Nordics are always described in modern UFO lore as being tall, blonde, and blue-eyed. Hmm. Interesting. And so what's very interesting, is it possible that what is what is being encountered in those cases are some a material son and daughter? Well, not Adam know. and Eve. Mm, yeah. Not Adam and Eve because they've you know they've long since you know left our planet and moved on, but mm -hmm. it's 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 mm -hmm. a possibility that that in more recent times, maybe there has been some type of, you know, kind of scouting mission or, or some type of, of, uh, you know, informational exchange or who knows what. Yeah. Well, but, those but things the, uh, the, we always have to speculate on. And that's why these ancient alien shows are so interesting because we always leave with what if that is what's happening. But I want to kind of, one thing that, that threads all of this is the spiritual aspect, which we have to give some attention to. What what Joel has described in the timeline, there's a the motive to all of that is to is to bring about and cultivate within the human population among the free will ascenders, is that we're working towards uh, a progressive society in an era of light and life and true fellowship and true brotherhood in every one of these events that we've described that's explained and narrated in the Arantia book it's about progress that the universe is a progressive idea be you perfect even as I am perfect this is the exhortation that comes out from the central and divine universe and so these things that we describe they're going to be shocking to people who their entire life have heard the Adam and Eve story they may not quite be ready to look at them as space aliens, but and, and that's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do is is bridge two uh, things together. One is, you know, is there other life in the universe? Yes. And is this other life uh, that's in the universe, does it work with us, in concert with us, parallel with us? And, and all of those things are true to a certain degree. But the fact of the matter is, is we live in an orderly universe. And had we been more privy to this knowledge at an earlier stage of our development, none of this would seem shocking. It would seem normal. The idea of extraterrestrial visitors coming to us because they're more advanced and they have something to share with us is a natural thing that happens. It's not the exception to the rule. It is the rule. But for us, we're still in our infancy, and we're still learning this for the first time. And so it is a little bit of a, a tectonic shift in our complacency. Um, do I, I think I make my, myself clear, and that's why I wanted to have yeah. this discussion and this bridge. 
because I think a yeah, lot of people a- would be relieved to say, wow, this could be right. You know, maybe I'm mm-hmm. not an orphan in the universe. Maybe I'm not isolated. Maybe it isn't just... You did- yeah. Yeah, Jim, Jim, you did a great job in describing that, you know, that whole purpose. That was mm-hmm. quite uh, the, the way you, you spoke of that. It's very purposeful in what's going on. It's not an accident. All of these, these developments, you know, the, the perversion of our history came about because of the rebellion. You know, and that was willfully chosen, but it also put Earth humanity on a very disadvantaged and difficult path. And part, a, a big reason for the arrival of the Urantia revelation on our planet is to correct these distortions in history. And well said. what you see yeah. when you examine the book is that the history that's presented makes a lot more sense. It is more comprehensive, it's more coherent, it's more complete, and it's consistent. Yeah. Much more so than anything else you find, whether they are scriptural writings or archaeological findings or what have you. It, it, it makes so much sense, and, and I think that that's one of the tremendous aspects of the book's appeal, even if someone is, is, is reading it, as a historical account, and without even the spiritual implications, which are immense. But if they were just looking at it, just with a curiosity to see what does it say about the historical account of the planet, it makes so much more sense than than any other literature uh, you'll find on the planet. And I and I want to close because I think we've we've uh, there's a natural point to I think where we can bring this to a close. Um, there's a, an article, I think I sent it to you, Joel. It's an article that talks about the migration patterns of early man that was just printed today. It's in the news. Um, I'll try to put it up on my website. But if you superimpose the migration map that archaeologists are now saying probably happened, and you match it with the explanation of the migrate, migrate, migration of human evolution, they're they're completely superimposed. They actually fit. This is 2022, and we're now reading. They're upgrading their ideas about human migrations, and they fit the Urantia narrative. That's that's right. profound. So right, yeah. And so yeah. Any closing thoughts, Joel? Yeah, I think the the, the last the last thing would be. You know, folks wonder where these megalithic structures come from, whether the pyramids or these obelisks or these these great walls and, and all these things that that uh, people question. Gosh, how did they these ancient peoples build those yeah. when we couldn't even do it with our own modern technology? Well, look at see what the Arantia book has to say about the Andite peoples. They were the progeny, uh, the the mixture between the Nodites and the Adamites, um, you know, between the Nodite eighth race and the, the violet ninth race. And those Andite peoples were great builders, great explorers. They were architects, engineers. Remember, they, they were the, the ants, they were the descendants of beings who were familiar with high technology. 
from Yeah, so when you think planets. of Amenhotep, Tutankhamun, the early kings of Egypt, these are the descendants of those people. So they, yes. you know, and um, yes. even Abraham, a Sumerian, a descendant yes. of the, as you yes. called, the, the northern Nodites. Um, yes. They go back 30, 40,000, even 100,000 years. So, yeah, yes. it's just, it's, a, it's incredible. I, I really enjoyed talking with you today joel and i know we'll we'll have you back on there's so much stuff that we can cover and i really appreciate your perspective on a lot of this it's it's just it's fun to do and it's fun to listen and i hope that the listeners yeah yeah so we'll do it again absolutely uh and again thank you for joining us on the arantia radio podcast Uh, i want to throw a mention out that in july because it is approaching uh, there is going to be a summit uh, in Chicago. Go to the Arantia.org website. They're going to be celebrating Melchizedek. Well, we'll talk to you again, Joel. Thank you again. And uh, we'll leave it here on the Arantia Radio Podcast. Mm-hmm.